<laughs> good morning. <clears throat> Merrick, you're a good pastor speaking to the children, and uh, I think it's a story worth telling you that as you said to the kids just now, I'm speaking to you, I looked at Maddie and Caleb and I said, he's speaking to you. And Maddie, me? And she looked up at Merrick and she goes, that's my beautiful friend. There you go, buddy. There's your encouragement for the day. My beautiful friend. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. We are going to continue our study through Matthew's gospel in chapter 17 today. However, mix it up a little bit. I'm going to ask you to turn with me first to 1 Peter chapter 2. We will get to Matthew 17, but we're going to... Actually, camp out in 1 Peter 2 for a while first, and then make our way back to Matthew chapter 17. I'll explain why here in just a little bit. Uh, In his outstanding book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, Carl Truman diagnoses the ills afflicting our society this day, and he observes similarities between the ancient and the postmodern world, the kind of early Christian and where we are today. And he writes in there, he notes in there, the second century world is in a sense our world. The second century world is in a sense our world. And what he means by that is despite all our apparent progress, we are returning to days when Pagans, unbelievers, wield social and political power against the church. I think we're all mostly aware of this. This is an increasing reality that we face. And I thought of that quote, I thought of Dr. Truman's writings on this, because this week I came across uh, the testimony of Polycarp, who was a Christian in the second century, in the year 160, Uh, He was arrested by the Romans. Polycarp was a revered theologian and pastor. He was 86 years old when he was arrested. Uh, Interesting fact about Polycarp, he was the last surviving church leader to have known an apostle. In fact, he was discipled by the apostle John. You can imagine the privilege of, of that. The Romans did arrest him, though. They hunted him down. They arrested him and put him on trial in a stadium filled with people, uh, and gave him, you know, they questioned him in front of the crowd and then gave him opportunity after opportunity to renounce Jesus Christ. In fact, he was he was told, renounce your atheism. And, you know, the, the crowd is all, you know, there was a bloodthirsty crowd. They were jeering. They were calling for his death. And so they're saying, renounce your atheism. And so he turned and looked at the crowds and said, you know, I announce these atheists. And so just a bold witness that he had and maintained in the face of death. And as the crowd grew restless for him to, to give up and for him to be burnt at the stake, the pro-council, the, the governing official, decided to change uh, tactics. He said to Polycarp, here is a crowd, convince them. Here is a crowd, convince them. And it may surprise us to find out, Polycarp said he felt no compulsion whatsoever to defend himself before this hostile crowd. 
He said they, have, they do not have ears to hear. So he renounced their atheism. He would not testify to them. But throughout that whole time, Polycarp remained honorable to the governing official, even reverential at times. And at one point, he explained to the man the difference. He said, we have been taught to pay proper respect to rulers and authorities appointed by God, as long as it does us no harm. It's really an incredible witness. The strength of his witness, the boldness in the face of death, and that even facing death, his conscience would be held captive by the word of God, that he owed respect, he owed honor to those who are threatening his very life, those in authorities over him. One of the texts that Polycarp often referred to, as many did in the early church who were persecuted by the state, was that of 1 Peter chapter 2, where we are looking today, and from which he drew the lesson that he shared with that proconsul. And I want to camp out here for a little bit in 1 Peter 2, because the lessons we learned from 1 Peter 2, referenced a lot in the 2nd century as they were persecuted, are lessons that Peter actually learned from Jesus in our passage, Matthew 17. And I love seeing how Scripture completes itself, fits all together. And so we want to look at the doctrine that flowers in 1 Peter 2, and then we'll look at how it was sown in Matthew chapter 17. If you're taking notes, the title of the sermon today is Christians as Citizens. Christians as Citizens. Now, just a moment of background here. Peter wrote this letter, the first epistle, to Christians who were suffering tremendous persecution. Uh, by the government, by society. This was their fiery trial that he referenced in chapter 1. They were under an oppressive government, one that did not allow them near the liberties that we enjoy in the United States today. And so with that awful suffering in mind, I want you to look with me at chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Follow carefully in God's word here. He writes, but you... Rejected by the world, rejected by others, you are in fact a chosen race. You are an elected people, he's saying. You were bought by Jesus or by God in his sovereign choice. You are a royal priesthood. Now that one just always strikes me. I bet you didn't wake up this morning feeling like a royal priest. It goes to show sometimes how out of tune we are with our identity in Jesus. You are a priest for the God Most High. And not only that, you are a royal priest. You are a part of his court, even a part of his royal family. Peter goes on, you represent him as his holy nation. You're you're not like the other nations. You remember what holy means, right? Set apart. You're not like other nations. You are a set apart nation. And then I love what he says next. A people for his own possession. Isn't that a special phrase? You've been bought by God, purchased by the blood of his own son. So you are God's through and through. He claims you. God wants you. He chose you. He bought you. You are God's own people. And all of this together means you're not like this world. 
You are very different from this world. You've been chosen out of it. You are now priests to God. You are a royal priesthood. You're not like other nations. You're a holy nation. You're different from every other nation. You've been purchased by God. And Peter says, all that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You want to know your political agenda? Whenever an election comes up, what is your number one priority? That somehow in all this and in everything in life, you might proclaim the excellencies of the God who has saved you. You want to know what we're most passionate about here? What we're most passionate about here is proclaiming the excellencies of a gracious God and letting the whole world know we are sinners in need of a Savior and Jesus is that Savior. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. That's why we go and do the fall festival or go to faith and blood. It's because we proclaim the excellencies of him who has transferred us from darkness into light. And then Peter hits this. He says, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So in other words, once you were nobody, now you're somebody really special. You are God's. And then he says, once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in other words, this is all the work of the Lord. This is according to his grace. This is according to his mercy. This is the mercy that should be marvelous in our eyes and that we want to exclaim to the world. And so, with all that in mind, he says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, just pause there for a moment, because that's big. He said, this is your whole identity. And so, as you think about your identity in relation to this world, you got to understand, in this world, you're just a sojourner passing through. You're just an exile, making your residence here, but not really belonging here, because actually your citizenship is in heaven. In a week and a half, I'm going to be traveling to Ethiopia to teach at the Sovereign Grace Pastors College there. And I'm really excited about that. It's hard for me to imagine in a week and a half I'm going to be in Africa, uh, which is like, whoa. Uh, But even more than that, the privilege I have to go and teach this pastor's college class about pastoral ministry. Uh, and so here we have some young aspiring men for pastoral ministry, and uh, the Lord has seen to call me to go and teach them about the nature of it and their responsibilities for it. And so it's a humbling experience. Uh, I'm excited about it. You, please pray for me. Pray for not only my travel. Um, it is a 15 and a half hour flight, so please pray for that. Uh, but pray for me teaching if you think my sermons are long, these poor students have to listen to me for eight hours a day, every day. So pray for them. Uh, pray for my family. God bless my wife who's going to be watching all my kids while I'm gone. So please pray for us. But while I'm in Ethiopia, I'm supposed to carry around a copy of my passport and my visa just in case, because I am not a citizen of Ethiopia. I am a citizen of the United States of America with all the rights and responsibilities of an American. While I'm in Ethiopia, I'm just passing through. I'm a sojourner there. I don't belong there. I'm traveling through, and that's what Peter says life in this world is like for us. We're just strangers here. We're not citizens. We're exiles, not residents. And so with that in mind... You're a sojourner exile here. How should you live in this world? How should you live here? Well, he says, first off, abstain. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Oh, man. 
The first thing we need to do as we think about being sojourners of this world is we need to be reminded, we need to be careful to abstain from things that pollute our soul. There's a whole lot of application that you can draw out of this verse right here. What pollutes your soul? What pollutes your affections for God? What pollutes that knowledge of your identity as a royal priesthood, a holy nation? What makes you feel comfortable here when we shouldn't be comfortable here? What draws you from that mission that we're all on to proclaim the excellencies of God? Probably many of the things that pull you away, that might pollute all this, probably many of those things are not bad things in and of themselves. Right? John Piper warns regularly, it's the gifts of God that are often most dangerous to God. It's the good things He has given us that we love too much. So we are to abstain from those passions of the flesh, those things of this world that muddy the water, that pollute our soul. That's first. And then Peter says, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, here's the reason why, when they speak evil or when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, you want to act honorably because you want to take away their basis for any criticism. Take away the unnecessary stumbling blocks in your life. Keep your conduct honorable. Keep it pure. Keep it upright so that if others try and accuse you of evil, when it comes down to it, when they really examine your life, there's just not much there for them to accuse you of. Nothing that can stick. So what Peter is really saying here is you don't belong to this world. You belong to God. You're citizens of His kingdom. You're only sojourners and exiles here. So negative command, abstain from what will pollute that. And positive command, live an honest life, a pure life, so that no one can criticize you. Okay, you follow all that? Now, look at what Peter does next. Brace yourself, because here's an application. Verse 13. Be subject to the governing authorities, to the every human institution. Submit yourself. Some of us cringe under this language. Don't like this one. Get yourself underneath what Peter says. Line yourself um, under. Rank yourself under every human institution. I mean, can you... Is, is that in your Bible? Am I... Is this like the un-American translation version that I'm using up here? Because... I mean, where's Thomas Jefferson when you need him? You guys know about Thomas... Right, the third president, how he took scissors and cut out of his Bible the things he didn't agree with? I feel like a lot of Americans would cut this passage out if they could. And we do. We actually, we do, right? We just ignore it. Just something we want to ignore. But Peter's not American. He's not a citizen of this country. He's a citizen of heaven. And he's telling us, this is how God's people behave. You're to subject yourself for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution. We do this for the Lord's sake, and that's the key. It's not that every law is good. It's not that every law makes, you know, is right and, and it is equitable. It doesn't even mean that every law is sensible. They're not all sensible, right? Like, have you ever been driving down like a wide open road and it's just like, there's just not a lot residential around you and it's just open and you're just, and it's a 35 speed limit and you're like, what in the world? Why do I have it? And being the Christians that you are, very humble, and so I know you're submitting and you're just driving 35, putting along. To the, not every law is sensible. And yet we are to subject ourselves to them for the Lord's sake. Why? Why? Why do we do this? Why? What is the point? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because if you're going to be perceived by this society as an upright and honest person, someone with character and integrity and, and morality, then they're going to evaluate you on the basis of, generally speaking, on the basis of what they understand right and wrong is. And a society makes its laws, makes its rules to try to say this is what we think is good and right. The laws and the rules say this is good as right, and so the society says law-abiding citizens, generally speaking, right, we say law-abiding citizens are good citizens. And the people who buck the laws, who fight the rules, who rebel against them, who break them, they're the immoral people, they're the no-good people, they're the people of ill repute. Because they reject our norms, they reject our laws, they reject our morals, and so they reject the society. And when you do that, by their perception, you are a troublemaker, you are a agitator, a mischief maker, you are a delinquent, you are a rebel. And I know, listen, I know that some of you glory in being rebels. Like, you kind of like that about yourself. Yeah, I'm a rebel. And I just want to press, that is an entirely wrong mindset. Because that is not our identity. We are not rebels. We are, what? What has he said? We are citizens of a heaven. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. We represent the king as royal priesthood. So we're not here to rebel. We're here to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we are here. And that should be wrapped up into our identity and our thinking about how we interact with those in governing authorities. So you see, we submit to every human institution, not for man's sake, but for the Lord's sake, to open the door so that we can proclaim his excellencies. We are creating a foundation of credibility for the proclamation of the gospel. You submit to advance God's kingdom. And then Peter says, whether it be the emperor supreme or to governors that sent by him or to punish or yeah, or as governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And remember here, Peter is writing to a group of Christians that were being terribly oppressed But he doesn't tell them to rebel. He doesn't tell them to to throw off the yoke. He tells them to submit. That's the basic principle. 
Now, there is a caveat here. There is a caveat to all this. And some of you are, are you know, when's he going to get to that caveat? When's he going to get to that caveat? When's he going to Here it is. Here's the caveat. But Jace, what if the state, what if the governing authorities tell me to do something against the Bible? What do I do? Simple. Don't do it. Caveat hit. Can we move on? I think we, we want to make it a bigger deal than Scripture does at times, but it is in Scripture. You know, in those situations, we find ourselves in like an Acts 4, Acts 5 situation where Peter was told by the authorities, stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop proclaiming Jesus. And Peter told them, we can't. There's a higher authority we must obey. We must obey God rather than men. There's a higher law. The word of God is a higher law. And so at the end of the day, we do have to obey the higher law. We must obey God's word. Only we have to be really careful about this. Because it's really easy to take God's word and try to make it say what we want it to say to excuse us to do what we want to do. Yeah, I, I remember back with all the um, stuff we were thinking through with COVID, right? There was so much we had to work through with this with COVID and we were thinking through these things and and there was arguments, you know, for and against have you know wearing masks in the, the service uh, during worship services. And there were good arguments for and good arguments against, I think. More respectable arguments for and respectable. But one of the one of the poor arguments I heard in that time was that we should not have to wear masks in the service because Paul says in Second Corinthians three that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. There are good arguments and there are bad arguments, I said. And that's just a really bad argument. That's just a really bad argument for that. So we have to be careful that we don't take God's word and try to use it to make it say what we want it to say, to excuse us to act the way we want to act, to try to get what we want. All right, back to or back to First Peter chapter two. I want to finish up a few more things here before we jump into Matthew seventeen, and then I hope you're you're going to see these connections between the two passages. So look, First Peter chapter two, verse fifteen. This is kind of the sum of it all. He's driving this to this point. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So God wants you to be good citizens, such good citizens here, that you silence any who would accuse you of evil doing. They look at you, and from their point of view, they just can't find anything truly wrong with you. And that's because that's how they're going to evaluate you first, from their point of view. And so Paul, or Peter says, verse 16, live as people who are free. You are free. Not using, though, your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So you're free from this world. Jesus has set you free. We're going to see this taught very clearly in Matthew 17. Jesus teaches that to Peter. But you cannot say, well, I'm free, so you can't tell me how to live. No, we sojourn through this life. We travel through this country as servants of God, literally as slaves to God. We are subject to God's will. And then verse 17 sums it all up. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
And, you know, that can hang us up. You know, I got to, I'll just say this here because we're just, we're just addressing what's in the text, right? You know, it really bothers me when Christians speak poorly of our political leaders. When they do not honor them. You know, I'm just, I'm just not going to call, I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden, but I'm never going to call Joe Biden an idiot. Or a deplorable person. Or anything like that. Because the scriptures call us to honor him for the Lord's sake. Romans 13 says he is God's appointed servant. And really the problem is not Trump or Biden or whoever else is president. The problem in our country is not created by these leaders. The problem is in us. The godless citizens. Built into a democracy are its own seeds of disillusion. And that's why John Adams, our, one of our founding fathers, famously said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. And he said, it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. A democracy has to have moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So the fault is our own, which is why, instead of, you know, Ragging on our leaders, what we really need to do is pray for revival in this country. Pray for revival. We shouldn't tear down our leaders. We should pray for our leaders. That's what we are commanded to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Which, by the way, you might have noticed we're doing that more regularly. We studied this recently as an eldership and just were convicted. This is one of the few things we are said, you must be praying for this regularly. And so we just committed, you know what? Most Sundays on a normal week, we are going to be praying for the political, the political, blah, 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 the political leaders. There they are. Because we, that's how you might affect change. So pray for revival. Pray for your political leaders. Do good. Be involved in. That's why we're announcing about this. This one, you know, bill one, or issue one. Like you be involved. But what we really need to do is get out there and preach the gospel. We need to get out there and proclaim the excellencies of Him who transfers people from darkness into light. That's the real effect of change. And to preach the gospel, though, we need a platform that says we are honorable people, we are respectable and upright people, and so that's why he's concerned with all this here. And then, just uh, very quickly, look at look at verse 18. Peter just presses this so far down, we, we can't even believe it. Servants, he says, again, literally, it's actually slaves. So Peter's addressing slaves here. Now, this was a different kind of slavery than existed in, in, in our country, uh, but still, they were slaves, men and women who had masters over them with extensive authority, and the Christians back then, it's interesting, they did not go and have a crusade against slavery. They didn't start an anti-slavery movement. What Peter says is, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What you mean, I have an unjust master, an unreasonable, verse 20 says he's even an abusive master who beats me, and I'm still supposed to be respectful and submissive to him? Subjecting myself to him? Yes, for the Lord's sake. Because, verse 19 tells us why, for this is a gracious thing. Gracious. Treating someone better than they deserve. Like the very gospel we proclaim. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
You see, you endure the injustice because it establishes your testimony of grace. That's why you subject yourself to it. And then just one more time, Peter goes here. Again, chapter 3. Just look down at chapter 3 with me in your Bible for a minute. Peter applies the same principle in another context. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, he says, so same, same principle, same principle. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Submit to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, even if they're not Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. So these wives, Peter says, he says to them, your evangelism begins by submission to the authority over you and respectfulness towards them. And so just like a wife will begin to win an unsaved husband by submitting to him as the one in authority and loving him with, and gen, being gentle towards him, so a Christian becomes capable of reaching their society for Christ when we are submissive to that society with a gentle and meek spirit, as far as we're able to. That's the principle Peter is teaching. Whether you're talking about marriage or household or a nation, submission to authority and an intent not to cause an offense, but to live honorably, not needlessly creating an offense, because that's what creates a platform for the gospel. So that's the principle. That's the message Peter is teaching. It's a very hard message. Where did Peter get the idea that this is how we're supposed to live as Christians? Where did he, where did, I mean, this is so in our face. How, where did he get this? Well, he got this from Jesus in seed form here in Matthew chapter 17. And so I want to look with you there. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 17. Let's see where Peter learned this from the master himself, our Lord and King Jesus. Here we have a short story with a strange miracle and some really large lessons. So Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27 I invite you to follow along now as I read this. This is what Holy Scripture says. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them, for me and for yourself. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Well, just a review briefly from last week. We are in a section of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. We're looking at probably the last six months of his life in this part of Matthew. And uh, he's really focused on training the twelve and preparing them for his departure. What life will look like and ministry will look like afterwards. And so we have all these lessons collected here for us. 
An interesting one about this lesson is, is Matthew is the only gospel author who records this for us. This story about a tax collector coming to collect taxes. Why do you think Matthew might have been the one to record this? Because he was a tax collector. It was a particular interest to him. It's also interesting that this strange little miracle uh, has to do with fishing, going and throwing a fish hook. And what was Peter's profession? Fisher. So we see something of the Lord tailoring things to his disciples in all this. In our passage, we're told that they arrive in Capernaum, which has been their base for much of Jesus' ministry. They were away for a long time, traveling and teaching probably for some months. Now they're back, and wouldn't you know it, the first to come and talk to them is the tax man. The tax man comes a call, and you've been away, and it's time to pay your taxes. Now, to understand something about this tax, this is not a Roman tax, it's a Jewish tax. It was collected annually to support the upkeep of the temple back in Jerusalem. It was expected that every male Jew between the age of 25 and 50 would contribute. And the tax was established back in Moses' day in Exodus chapter 30, if you want to go read about it later, Exodus 30. And there are two things I want you to, to bear in mind about this tax. Okay, two things. First, the amount, and then second, the purpose. This is not my, these are not my points for my sermon. These are me warming up for my points for my sermon. So this is first the amount, second the purpose. First the amount. Unlike other taxes, this was a flat rate. Everyone paid the same price, a half shekel, which in Jesus' day worked out to two drachmas, which is why it's called a two drachma tax in our passage. The first thing you need to know then is that everyone paid the same amount, two drachmas. So the amount was two drachmas and everyone paid the same amount. Second, the purpose of the tax. Uh, I told you that the, the money was used for the upkeep of the temple, the ministry at the temple. But there was a spiritual purpose behind this tax. If you go back and read in Exodus chapter 30, God calls it a ransom payment. And he also describes it as atonement money. And I think this is why everyone had to pay the same amount. Because every life is worth the same to God. No one is more or less important. Every life is worth the same to God. Rich or poor, healthy or sick, powerful or weak, smart or not so smart, king or citizen, doesn't matter. No one's person life is more valuable than another to God. And the purpose of this ransom tax was to remind the Jewish people, uh, one, of that equality before God, but also that they owed their lives to God. They owed their lives to God, represented by the sacrificial system, which saved them, bought them, carried out at the temple, which the money of this tax went to go and support. So you can see kind of why the Lord tied them together there. So, keep that in mind. We'll come back to some of that later. Back to Peter in our passage. Tax collectors approach him. They say, does your teacher teacher not pay the tax? You can hear, I hope here, the negative way in which they ask this. Does he not pay this tax? So, they come with something of an agenda here. And that's probably because they had heard Jesus teach. Or they had at least heard about his teachings. Where he said sometimes some, some some things that appeared negative about the temple. Remember Jesus said, behold, something great, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Referring to himself, right? 
And so they were probably wondering, you know, legitimately, so does your master pay this tax? Does he or does he not? And Peter assures them, yes, he does. And then knowing all this happened, you see it says Jesus spoke to Peter first. So somehow Jesus knew. Maybe maybe he could just overhear. Maybe it happened right outside the house. Or maybe he divinely knew. We don't know. But we see that Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach some very important lessons. And there are, believe it or not, three of them. How how does that always happen? It's just always three. And it's true. It's because it's Trinitarian. It's a great number. So we like three threes to be exact. Three is what we're going to focus on. Three lessons here at least. And the first is the privilege of sons. The privilege of sons. In verse 25, Jesus says to Simon Peter, What do you think, Simon? I don't know what Simon Peter's like, but I feel like I'd probably be a little nervous every time Jesus asked me for my opinion before he gives me his opinion. Um, So I wonder how he heard this. What do you think, Peter? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? Peter's like, oh, I've got this one. I know this one. All right, yeah, this was not a hard theological question. They don't do it from their family. They do it from others. And Jesus tells him, and you might want to mark these words. You might want to underline these words because they're very important. Then the sons are free. Then the sons are free. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, clearly he's using an analogy where God is analogous to the king. And in the analogy, there's God who's the king, and then there are sons of the king. And so the question is, who are the sons of the king? Well, to begin with, it'd be a fair guess to say, Jesus is obviously the son of the king, right? This has been Peter's great confession back in chapter 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in Matthew chapter 17, very next chapter, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, God says, God declares over Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus is clearly a son, but is anyone else a son? Jesus did say to Peter, then the sons in the plural are free. So who else is a son? Well, verse 27 gives us a decisive piece of information in that regard. Jesus tells Peter, however, so even though the sons are free, so as not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, which was enough to cover both of them. And he says, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So even though Peter, I am free, and you are free, go ahead and pay the tax so as not to give offense. So Jesus is saying, he's free and all his disciples are free. He's the son of the king and all who are with him are sons of the king. And we know this from the scriptures, taught in several places, but one would be Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul writes, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, Mary, born under the law of the Old Testament, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has set, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. In other words, you're free with the equivalent, 
you are no longer a slave, but a son, you are a free son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So if you believe in Jesus, then wonderful reminder today, if you didn't remember this, or if you didn't know this, good to know, you have been adopted by the king. God has made you his own son, which is something very similar to what we saw in First Peter, where he says he has made us his own special people. We are entirely free because we are entirely God's. God is the king of the earth. God rules everything. We are the sons of God. So we get all the benefits of being the king's sons. Our obligation is to him and to his kingdom. It is not to the kingdoms of this world. And so when the tax man comes a calling at your house, there is a sense in which you can say, forget it, buddy. I don't owe you a dime. I thought I'd get a hallelujah. Nobody? Nobody wants to take me up on that? Tax-free situation right here. You can write this off. I am free. I am the king's son. I belong to the king of heaven. And I'm just a sojourner here passing through. So, no thank you. The privilege of the sons of God is you are entirely free only... You knew there was an only, you knew there was a but coming. It's too good to be true. Only, what does Paul teach in Galatians about true freedom? Right after he teaches about our adoption. Galatians 5.13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So we've been granted incredible freedom. But if we're really gods, if we're truly Christians, then we won't use our freedom for ourselves, but we will use it to serve others. That's what freedom is really for. It is for other people, not ourselves. Which leads us to Jesus' second lesson in this passage, the priority of others. We saw the privilege of sons, but now we need to see the priority of others. This is a very clear lesson here. Others are given a priority. It's a very clear lesson, but as one of my teachers at the pastor's college said, the profundity is in the doing of it. It's not hard to understand, but it can be hard to do. We see this lesson taught in verse 27, and it's really the other key phrase in this passage. So if you underline the first one, you really ought to underline this one as well. At the beginning of verse 27, Jesus says, However, not to give offense to them, so as to not offend them. So sons of the kingdom of God are, in a sense, entirely free from the requirements of the kingdoms of men. This is not our home. We're sojourners passing through. And yet... While you are in this world, while you are in this kingdom, while you're still a sojourner passing through and an exile making your residence here, out of loyalty to your true king, and for a reason important to his kingdom, you are to willingly submit to the obligations of this kingdom, of this world. And the reason for that is so that you do not cause offense. And you see the same thing being taught by Peter. Keep your conduct, Peter wrote, honorable among the Gentiles. We don't want to offend them. Why? Because it'll sabotage your witness. 
The gospel is offensive enough. It's foolishness to some. It's a stumbling block to others. It is always offensive to human pride. There's no way of getting around that. And God directs us, don't you dare compromise on the truth of the gospel in any way. Don't try to make it easier for people to swallow. But also, get yourself out of the way of it. Let the gospel be offensive enough. Don't you add to its offense. Instead, your life ought to, Paul writes in Titus 2.10, adorn the gospel. Make it attractive. Make it desirable. Not just to other Christians, but to unbelievers, a watching world. Consider this resolution by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 9.12. He says, I would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Are you that clear on the mission God has given you to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into light? Are you that clear on that mission that with the same resolve you can say, I would, I would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus? So Christian, give no offense as you travel through this life. Don't disregard the law. Don't show contempt for the authorities over you. Don't cheat your company through less than faithful labor. Don't cheat in school. Whatever institution in view is in view, whether it's marriage or family or government or church or banking or education, we are to live in respect of each of these establishments so as to not give needless offense to the gospel. Now, returning to to Polycarp and and the second century Christians and witnesses and apologists there, it it is fascinating to study how they argued for Christianity. It's very different than how it's argued by many today. The second century apologists, they, they, they didn't spend their time denouncing the evils of the emperor or his court or the senate or society. Rather, they positively argued that Christians, what? Made the best citizens and the best parents and the best servants and the best neighbors and the best employees. And so thus they should just be left alone so that they can do good. Friends, the king's sons are free. Only we must use that freedom not for ourselves, but in service to others, to prefer others. We must live honest and upright lives that create a platform for the gospel. Well, this brings us to the third and final lesson Jesus wants to teach us here, and that is the provision of God, seeing the privilege of sons, and we have considered the preference of others, and we must look now, finally, at the provision of God, and we'll close with this. It's an amazing ending, really. This This is a fascinating ending. In fact, if you knew this passage, you probably remembered it more for the miracle Jesus performed than for the lesson he was teaching. Because it's a strange little miracle, but like we said, it fit Peter, who was by trade a fisherman. Jesus said, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Uh, Shekel is enough to pay for both of them. 
And the, the lesson that's usually drawn from here is, is, is right as far as it goes. We see in this the, the provision of God, the incredible provision of God. Jesus performed this miracle, but note the context in which this provision is given. It's as if Jesus was saying, yes, I want you to live in such a way in this world that you give no offense. You're free, but live so as to give no offense to others. And here's my promise. I will provide everything you need to live like that. I will provide everything you need to live like that. God wants you to know that he can and he will provide for you in ways that you could never dream of so long as you are faithful to that mission of proclaiming his excellencies of how he transferred you from darkness into the marvelous light of his son. He can and will provide for you. Our king will provide for us here. And yet, there is something more in this passage still. Something even, in fact, more powerful, more profound, more amazing. Do you remember what God called this this text back in Exodus chapter 30? What did we say he called it? Remember? A ransom. A ransom payment. Atonement money. Friends, do you see the irony in this? The one man who did not need to pay a ransom, a ransom tax, was the man who procured a payment for himself and for Peter. The point here, the point in all this, friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't miss The gospel here. The point here is we all owe God payment for all our sins. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how did Jesus make payment for our sins? Well, we know he paid it by offering his own life as a ransom payment for us. We owed life to God. Jesus paid it for us by giving his own life in our place on the cross. This is in fact what Jesus teaches in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the good news of this gospel is that just as Jesus paid the full tax for himself and Peter, so Jesus has paid the full price of your ransom at the cross. Just as that shekel covered both Jesus and Peter, so his payment at the cross totally covers all your sin. Jesus has made the atoning payment for your life, and friends, Jesus paid it all. He paid for all your sins in the past, all your sins in the present, and all your sins in the future as well. Jesus has paid it all. And so, if that is our king, what keeps you from Jesus? And what keeps you from trusting him? And what keeps you from obeying? Put your faith in Jesus. Let him pay for all your sins. Be free. Receive your adoption as sons of God. But stay on the mission. 
proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has paid it all for you and transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light. Friends, this is what it's all about. Let's pray. Well, God in heaven, this is an awesome little passage that sheds incredible light. It's small, but it's powerful, and it's packed. And so, Lord, I pray out of this passage, Lord, for those here today who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, not savingly, They know you, Jesus. I know they do. They know all about you, and there's a part of them that believes in you in their heads, but they do not in their heart yet. And I just pray that today they would let you pay it all. That they would stop trying to pay it themselves and let you pay it all. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ while he may be found that you might be saved. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would take this passage like a great tool of alignment in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, and recalibrate us to you and your kingdom today. Pray that you would help us to see your will, the good purposes you have for us, something to think more about how we are to live now, here and now, in this present day, and how we should go into this next year and all the elections that we have in front of us. Lord, I pray, help us to think rightly about all this. Help us to honor you, Lord. Help us to proclaim your excellencies, Lord. May you give us grace to proclaim your excellencies boldly, loudly, beautifully uh, at the Fall Festival next Saturday, God. We're asking for you to bring people here. Give us open doors, Lord Jesus. Help us to live lives that adorn that gospel that we proclaim. And where there's an offense needlessly caused by our lives, I pray, bring conviction, God. Lead us into repentance. Help us change. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.